That is Saturday, November 9th. Sign up sheet in the vestibule if you would like to attend. Definition of an idol, as we have been discussing in recent weeks. Idolatry is living on substitutes. It exchanges the one true living Christ for a counterfeit. A quote on idols. Idols never satisfy. They just leave you with a lust for more. Idols never satisfy. They just leave you with a lust for more. I have yet to see a gentleman who has his set of wheels as an idol that is satisfied with one vehicle for life. Always got to be something new, another one, and another one. I have yet to meet a lady who is basically satisfied with not buying if clothing are her idol. She's not satisfied unless she gets something new over and over and over again. Idols never satisfy. They leave you with a nagging lust for more. Those of us who like technology, you buy a computer and you say, this is the last computer I'll buy. Well, this is the last phone I'll buy, and then they come out with something new and faster and quicker, and, oh, i got to have that. Idols never satisfy. They just leave you with a lust for more. Are all humans born idolaters? Are all humans born as idol worshippers? We took a couple weeks to look at Genesis chapter 3, and we found that Adam and Eve chose not to trust God. They chose to trust themselves. They chose to follow Satan and basically became idolaters. Are all humans born idolaters? Let's take our Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul has dealt with sin, explaining sin that all humans are under sin. By nature, we do not respond to God. In chapter 3, he talked about the fact that there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. They've all turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good. We say, well, I know people that are seeking God. No, God sought them. God worked in their life or is working in their life, but they in their own did not seek God. Because humans are dead and and they're separated from God. Then in chapters 4 and 5, he talks about a righteousness available from God. And to contrast and drive home the reconciliation that comes through Christ, which he discusses in Romans 5, 1 through 11, he says in chapter 5 and verse 12, Therefore, 
That is, in light of the fact that reconciliation, the restoration to God, comes through Christ. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all sin. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. All humans are in Adam. All humans, by nature, are separated from God. Death reigned. Verse 15, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, that one man being Adam, and much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many. Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased much more. So that just as sin reigned in life, so also grace might reign through righteousness. To bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The whole human race is either in Adam in Christ he clearly talks about sin entering the whole world through one man and death came through sin Adam chose to disobey God and he brought death he brought sin he brought condemnation he brought separation from God clearly stated in the passage. So if Adam chose to trust self, he chose not to trust God, he brought condemnation, he brought death, he brought judgment and so on. And we're born in sin, we're born separated from God. Then we're born idolaters. See, when Paul said in chapter 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. He's making a conclusion about the whole human race, Jew and Gentile. In chapter 5, he's talking about in Adam or in Christ. When we come to be in Christ, we have justification. We receive life. There's no no condemnation. We have eternal life. All those items mentioned in chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, and you were dead in your transgressions and sins, separated from God, 
being in transgressions and sins. In Titus chapter 3, Paul again talks about the fact that we were and then we come to be in Christ. All humans are born in sin, separated from God. Since I as a parent am in sin, Ruth Ann as a parent is in sin, our four kids were born dead in transgressions and sins. Idolaters. Didn't take long for that to be revealed. Started yakking pretty quick, you know, when the diaper doesn't get changed or they get hungry. And then as they get a little older, they learn to throw a temper tantrum. Well, that's about self, me. I want to be the center of my life. And, you know, they get a little bit older than that, then they want something. And they will beg and they'll plead and they'll beg you unmercifully sometimes. And, well, I'm just not going to love you, Mom. I'm not going to love you, Dad, if you don't give me what I want. That all comes back to being idolaters. Romans 3, I think, brings that out very clearly, along with Genesis 2. And that should be Romans 5, 12 through 21, which we discussed. Ephesians 2 brings that out, along with Titus 3. Now, if you're a parent, think back of when you went to the hospital, if your child was born in the hospital, and you were anticipating the birth of this child. The baby is born and the doctor hands it to you and the doctor says, I just want you to understand that this little child that I'm giving to you that was just born is an idolater. You probably want to slap the doctor in the face. Say, not my child. I think scripture teaches that. What must parents address in their children if they're to come to Christ and mature in Christ? We can't make a child come to Christ. But if we see them as in sin, separated from God, prone and tempted and basically committed to idols of one type or another, it's going to make a big difference in how we respond. Over and over again, I hear in our culture, people say, oh, I can't believe how bad our culture is getting. I just can't believe the way young people are today. My response, we raised them. See, if you let a person who is committed to idols go when they're three years old and four years old and five years old, they're going to continue that all along. And we can't force them to respond to God. But over here you have a two-year-old. They don't get their way and they pitch a temper tantrum. And it depends how you respond to that. When they're a 16-year-old, pitch a temper tantrum. It may be much different than when they're a two-year-old. 
But if you teach them and seek to bring that temper tantrum into rain when they're two-year-old, by the time they're five, maybe they won't throw any, or they might be much slower to throw one, because you're teaching them to respond to authority. You ever stop to consider that God holds children responsible for one thing? To obey and honor their parents. If a child is learning to obey and honor mom and dad when they're one and two and three, that's going to make a big, big difference as they move into their teen years and into their adult years. Because the parents are seen authorities. They go to school. You respect teachers. I'm old school maybe on this, but if you get in trouble in school, you probably should be in some trouble at home. Because parents are responsible for teaching their children to respect authority. See, if I as a parent protect my child when they're worshiping the idol of self in school, what's going to happen? I go to the teacher and say, you must be wrong. You can't do that to my child. I'm basically encouraging them to continue to worship an idol. The whole issue of authority, as you look at scripture for parents, as they deal with that little baby that is dead in sin, separated from a relationship with God, to teach them to obey your authority and to teach them how to walk with God. Whether they choose to respond to that and walk in that way, we cannot guarantee that. But if we see children as, oh, they're such cute little things, and they are. But we also need to see them as being born in Adam. comment or question before we go on. Some of you just sit there and I'm not sure how to read your looks. <laughs> Can we conclude that all our relational struggles have idolatry at the core? Can we conclude that all our relational struggles have idolatry at the core? I want you to think about the Ten Commandments. God spoke to Israel first about how they respond to him, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and so on. The first four commandments deal with Israel relating to God. The six commandments that follow that deal with relationship with others. As we deal with our relationship with God, our relationship with others take on a much different connotation. 
As you read Ephesians, as you read Romans, as you read Colossians and some other epistles, you will find that the writers talk about relating to God first. And then they talk about relating to others. In Ephesians, as an example, he talks about being in Christ in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then in chapter 4, he says, I beseech you, I beg you, you know, walk worthy of the calling you have received. Be humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another. He's talking about relationships, but they come after relating to God. Which leads to another question. Can one change apart from Christ? Can one change apart from Christ? No. No. But I have a question. Haven't unbelievers changed a lot? Depends what kind of change we're talking about. A dead human that's dead spiritually may seek to change and they may change in some ways but who gets the credit? The great I. When we go to God and say, God, I can't change. Good, I know you can't. Because if you do change, you're just going to give credit to yourself and you're going to get bigger and bigger. But through Christ, you can't change. Can one change apart from Christ? Not for God's glory. It might be for self-glory, but not for God's glory. Can one change apart from addressing heart idols? Can one change apart from addressing heart idols? I know I've mentioned this a number of times. I went off to Tennessee Temple to prepare to be a pastor. And, you know, I'm supposed to be teaching and preaching others and so on and one of my heart idols was that uh, I liked a car. That was a heart idol. And God kind of dealt with that heart idol. And then uh, after I'd been here a number of years, God kind of said to me, Dan, you know, you have another heart idol. You're aware of it? So after my, well, even before my surgery 30 some years ago, The Lord seemed to say, Dan, you value your physical health quite a bit, don't you? Yeah, God, I don't miss any days because I'm sick. I'm full of vim and vigor. I can get up when I want. I'm out in the garden at 5.30 in the morning running the tiller and so on. God said, okay. And he dealt with that heart idol. Stop and think about life as we address heart idols we change and God seems to over and over again say hey Dan how about this how about that you know just looking at the heart I say this about religious leaders since I am one and I've talked to many over the years 
one of the hard items of religious leaders is to be successful. Oh, they're doing good work, but we've got to be successful. What is successful? Having a lot of numbers. Right there, you took a corner that you shouldn't have taken. How about the heart idol of having to have godly children? So when we yell and scream at our kids and want them to behave and they don't shape up and we were just ready to do whatever to them, maybe we better check our own heart, what's going on in our own heart. Can we be content in Christ with godly children or without godly children? Are the cultural ills in our nation related to idolatry? I see some heads going, yes. I don't have this one up there. Maybe I ought to, should have put it up there. Are the body of Christ ills that we have along the way related to idolatry? Just stop and think, what, what is going on? in the heart. I used to play softball and I gave it up just because, you know, some physical issues. And I used to come home from games and Ruth Ann would say, Dan, why do you take softball so serious? I didn't know I was taking it so serious. Well, you were standing out there in a the pitcher's mound and you just looked like, you know, you lost your last friend. I didn't know I took it so serious. And, you know, she kept saying that to me, and I got to thinking more. You know, and I, I realized I really like to win. So was I as content when I went home and we lost as if we won? Oh, God just, okay, Dan, you know, where's your heart? Just make sure it's in the right place. We can look at our culture but look at ourself. To this day, I know, probably know where some of this comes from. I'm in Adam, I understand that. Playing Dutch Blitz with Abby and Rachel the other night. And uh, I thought, you know, I said to Abby, that's not fair. But I had a reason for saying that. I wanted to learn to play by the rules, you know. But I had to ask myself, who cares who wins? I didn't care who won, really. But if I'm not careful to this day, it will affect me. Why? Because Romans 5. I was not Adam. I'm in Christ now. The enemies we as believers face within and without are idolatrous to the core. Satan is idolatrous to the core. He's one of our enemies. The sinful nature is idolatrous to the core. One of our enemies. The world system is idolatrous to the core. One of our enemies. Just think about that. We as believers in Christ, the enemies we battle with Satan, the world system, and our own sinful nature are idolatrous to the core. 
So we battle with it. But in Christ, he extends us grace. He extends us forgiveness. And he helps us move beyond those idols. Think about David. David is called a man after God's own heart. He ran away from Saul for many years. He was sensitive to God. And as he was king in Jerusalem, and he's out on his housetop one night, and he looks across and sees a woman bathing. Something was going on in the heart. He had multiple wives already. He wanted another one. Is that why he says in his confession in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, sin in my heart. A couple other comments and we'll wrap it up. If we don't address or don't confront idolatry, we will interpret what we are taught, what we read, what we hear through the grid of our idols. If one of my idols, if one of our idols as a country is that, you know, our nation's got to do well and it's got to be easy for us and it's, things got to get better, I will hear all the news through that grid. And sometimes we'll, ah, our nations are terrible. Now, why don't we do something? You know, people really get angry about what happens in our country, and, you know, we express it. You know, we were people, a lot of people were upset about the deficit deal and, you know, raising the debt limit and so on. Why? What's going on in the heart? We read the book, the Bible. Things aren't going to get better forever. So we hear the news. So we kick the ball down the field a little bit. Now in February, January and February, we'll have to deal with, you know, the debt and deficit again. So our country defaults. Is that the end of the world? Oh, I can't do that. Whoa, where's your idol or what is your idol? Might make us have a hard time. What's our idol? I'm not saying there is, but stop and think about it. What's going on within? We tend to see things according to our idols. Close with an example. Years ago, I was playing softball. I was pitcher. We had stealing. And one time I wound up and was ready to let the ball go and I saw movement out of the corner of my eye and I stopped. That's a balk. So the rule is runners advance. I had no problem with that. There was a guy in the other team just raked me across the coals unmercifully. What happened, you know, he... I broke the rule, 
you know, I'm not supposed to balk, and I did. Runners advance, end of the game. All right, another story, but it didn't happen that way. So I went home that night, and I uh, said to Ruth Ann, I can't go to bed tonight until I try to resolve this. You know, the guy was just really angry at me. So I gave him a call. We talked a little, and he said, I just want you to know when the game's over, I leave the game, and that's the end of it. I said, you leave a game, and that's the end of it? When you acted like you did on the field? Yeah. I said, okay, I can't make you respond, but you know we do have an issue here, and I will let it die. I will not bring it up to you again. But I had to ask myself, what was going on in my heart and what was going on in his heart? And I had to conclude that what was going on in my heart was that if I did something wrong, I wanted to ask forgiveness and admit I was wrong because I wanted to obey God. What was going on in his heart? I guess I would conclude that when he get mad, it was okay to get mad and say what he wanted and it didn't matter. He was king. See, what's going on in our hearts in our day-by-day living and how we respond? We start off idolaters. Christ comes into our life and then we're in the process of God's grace moving to be more and more sensitive to Christ. We'll pray together, then take a brief break, and then we'll have our church meeting. Father, we do thank you for your grace. We know that children begin separated from you, dead in transgressions and sins. We all began there because we're in Adam. And I pray that you might help us in dealing with issues in our own life, in the lives of others that you bring into our severes of influence, with our children, with our grandchildren. And may we be gentle and gracious, Father, realizing how gentle and gracious you are in responding to us. David, man caught after your own heart, but yet stole another man's wife and had him murdered. But you used him to write many psalms. Peter, who on a number of occasions failed Christ, yet you used him on the day of Pentecost and on many other occasions, and he wrote First and Second Peter. Father, we're grateful as we seek to yield to you. You're so gracious and working in our lives. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.